I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Peggy. Thank you, John, and congratulations on your two. You want this on? Testing, one, two. That's good enough. You can all hear me, can't you? Um, and congratulations on our two-year girl. Where did she go? hundred pounds. That is inspiring. Went out for a snack. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well... I've been abstaining for 21 years. Friday before last was 7,777 days. It's kind of fun to play with numbers sometimes. I started, um, oh man, 21 years ago we had the gray sheet and the big book. We didn't have our own book yet. So I started on gray sheet and about a year later developed hypoglycemia. So I've been living on a hypoglycemic diet for 20 years. I eat a couple pounds of vegetables every day and a couple ounces of protein three or four times a day. And as long as I do that, I stay conscious and, um, and abstinent. As long as that's where my parameters are. We all set our own abstinence, but other other things that some people consider food are not food to me. <laughs> and I studied nutrition for 30 years, too. So I know that um, what the way I eat is actually nutritionally sound. Vegetables do have some carbohydrates. In fact, they have about the right amount for city dwellers. We don't need to carbo-load unless we're running marathons. And I sponsor some girls, and sometimes they say, oh, I can eat vegetables in my food plan. They have carbohydrates. Yeah, but they have the right amount. <laughs> or they say, I have to have um, carbo foods, or I will um, feel sleepy. Well, <laughs> you know. So we go round and round about that. But um, I will start in the, the summer of... In 1976, I read 42 books about dieting and nutrition, and I tried all the diets, and I looked in the nutrition books for the ultimate diet that had the most vitamins and minerals and the least amount of calories. I came up with cantaloupe, shrimp, spinach, and a little um, um, wheat germ, and I actually lived on that for a while. Uh, Grown-ups thought I was slim, referred to me as slender, but I knew about those thighs and upper arms that were too big for the rest of me, and my peers also knew about them. So what grown-ups said just did not matter to me. I wanted to be skinnier. Um, and so I, I lived on that for a while, and after four years, I realized I had anorexia, and I didn't know it. I weighed 101 pounds after four years, and I'm 5'8". So I was skin and bones. That's about 25 pounds less than I weigh now. And I had malnutrition, and a doctor told me I had to um, start eating. So then I, for the next three and a half years, I ate in the mornings and then used my alcohol, cocaine, nicotine diet for the rest of the day. That was, that was the best diet I ever had. But that was even better than cantaloupe, shrimp, and spinach. But, um, but the problem with that diet, I can't recommend it, is that you not only lose weight, you lose friends, you lose your career, you lose your car. You lose your memory. I couldn't even remember how to do my profession. And you lose um, 
you start losing material things. I started losing some of my material stuff. And I was going to psychiatrists trying to get them to tell me how to get along with people. And I didn't tell them that I drank and used every day. <laughs> and, and I had started grazing and gaining weight, too. So this psychiatrist had me do a food journal. And that's when... And she said, include any drugs and alcohol. <laughs> For the first time, I was ready to be honest, and I was ready to be busted. And she did. She told me I was an alcoholic. Once I went to AA and quit the alcohol, cocaine, and nicotine, I started wholesale binging and realized this was connected to my food. I have a food problem. And I told the people in... I was binging and gaining weight so fast, I would have weighed hundreds of pounds in a year. Um, and the kind people in the AA told me about our sister program, OA. And I did not want to work another program, but there was no place else to go. I had tried all the psychiatrists. I had tried an experimental hypnosis program from UCLA. I had tried everything to stop eating compulsively. I'd gone to seminars and read books. I'd made up my own diets. I had taken trips and not taken trips. I'd tried everything. And I was just flat wasted by compulsive eating. I could not do anything except eat while I was driving to the next place to get more to eat. And to eat that while I was driving to the next place to get more to eat. And I was crazy. And so I went to OA. There I heard about um, bulimia, so I went home and tried that. <laughs> of course, if there's one more thing to try, I'll, I'll try it before I'll come to the last house on the block, OA. So I've been working this program. I went to OA. There were ladies there who were just like me, but they were abstinent, and they were living in the mainstream of life. That was important to me. You had to be not only abstinent, but sane, or else I didn't want what you had. And But these ladies were, and they were kind enough to tell me, I wanted to know, how do you do this? How do you not eat? How do you live in the mainstream of life? And so they, one of them sponsored me. And... Um, we work the steps. I see, I'll still see, she's an actress, and I still see her on television sometimes. Of course, I look at her thighs right away to see if she's still abstinent. And, and she is. She looks great. Um, so I'll back up a little. Why was I compulsive eating, and why was I an alcoholic? Well, I, I grew up in uh, Phoenix. I went to grade school in Phoenix, and I went to junior high school in San Francisco. I went to high school in South America, in Lima, Peru. And the reason we moved all those times was my mother kept getting married and divorced. I've been a musician since I was six years old, and um, I did that all along. Another significant, wherever I was, I played whatever musical instruments were around and another thing that became significant later was that in junior high school in San Francisco, they had a very progressive school system. They tested us and told my mother that I was a gifted child and put me in the classes for gifted children. So we found out that I have a very high IQ. And then nobody ever said another word about it because this was the 60s and they didn't need smart girls for anything. We were still supposed to be housewives and... You know, we could be a secretary or a teacher or a nurse or something before we got married. But 
there really wasn't, nobody needed smart girls for anything. So it was just never mentioned again. And I never thought about it again until a few years ago when I, well, we'll get to that part, why I thought of it. I have a daughter who's, who's um, very, very smart and has ADD, which um, runs in the same families with alcoholism, compulsive eating, autism, and ADD. These things hop, skip, and jump through the same families generationally. And um, we found out there that I had ADD growing up, too, and never knew it. So, <laughs> so we, we learn more as we get older. So um, after we left... Um, In South America, I went to a private British school, and there I fit in for the first time. I had always been an odd duck, different from the other kids, different from my family. I was taller, smarter, faster, prettier. My family is all short people, like 5'2", 5'3", and I, I was different from them, and I was different from the other kids at school. And when, um, when we came back to the United States, we came to the Midwest, and I was really different from them. For which, for one thing, I was educated. I was years ahead of the teachers and the other students, and they hated my guts because they didn't, they didn't cotton to no smart women or smart mouth girls, they called it. So I was very unpopular there. So I married the first guy who came along, which fortunately for me, he was wonderful. He was, he loved me. He was. He was good-looking and smart and rich. And best of all, his family lived in another state. So I married him, and we left there. (laughs) And so um, he died soon after that. I was 19 years old when I was a widow. And he left me some money. And I once again, there I am. I planned for my life to be there in Phoenix. I planned my life, and it got thrown away. It got yanked away. And in San Francisco, I got used to that. That was culture shock. In Phoenix, there were two kinds of people, cowboys and Indians. And we thought, you know, everybody in the world was just like us, Christians, white Christians, except that there were some people like Jews and Catholics, a few of them here and there, but they were always fighting each other, so they didn't matter. And there were a few people like... um, like black and brown people, kind of brown like the Indians, but they didn't wear clothes and they worshipped trees, so they didn't matter. And really, I thought the whole world was just like me until I went to San Francisco, and then there's multicolored people everywhere, and they were in my school and wearing clothes and everything. So that's when I, that's when I did my first compulsive eating. I was shocked. I was lonely. My father was gone. My mother was working. And... Um, I sat on the stairs and I got my allowance, ran to the store every Saturday, got the sweetest, saltiest, spiciest, syrupy, sweet stuff I could find and crammed it as fast as I could. And for a while, I didn't even make it to my house. I would sit on the stairs outside (laughs) and eat it. And for a while, it blissed me out. I didn't think about me. For a while, it quieted down my overactive brain that was always light years ahead of everything, but now it had light years full of worries. And um, so food worked for me when I was 12. And then when we were in happier circumstances, I didn't eat compulsively. But um, then 
you know, after my husband died, um, my mother was in California married to husband number three. <laughs> and so she said, why don't you come out here and go to college? I had nothing better to do. So I came out here and I started playing in a band because school didn't start. And um, suddenly I was making the most money I had ever seen in my life and getting the most attention I had ever gotten. And that's what I did. I was a rock and roller for for about 15 years. And um, it was a wonderful life for a young single girl. I had the best time. I don't regret a minute of it. That's where I got the drugs, of course. <laughs> it, it was everywhere, and it was free. And it was acceptable in my business. And um, so that... The, those two, those went hand in hand, and also in the entertainment industry, it's imperative to be thin. The thinner, the better, and so it all went together. And by the time 1984, 1984, when I quit drinking and using, and then I started binging in '85 when I came into OA. Um, by that time, I was a little older and had to pull my career back together, so I did. And I had gone to college off and on, too. I made straight A's, didn't even look in the books, and made straight A's anyway. Dean's List student, until I started drinking. Then, you know, I went to a different school and got all F's because I just couldn't stand in those lines anymore, you know, when you're wasted. And um, so... Um, so there I was in 85, clean, sober, abstinent, and I was in the San Fernando Valley, so I was going to those great OA meetings out there and the great AA meetings too. So we started working the steps, and today I take girls through the steps um, pretty closely to the way I was taken through the steps. One, two, and three are um, um, steps where I, I, step one was my story, my binging history, what makes me think I'm, I'm a compulsive eater and in what ways is my life unmanageable. All the binges were in that, all the, um, the feelings, the losses, the, um, um, the, the self-loathing that I felt the mornings after I binged. My last couple of days of binging, I, was, I remember being on my kitchen floor with a butcher knife and I wanted to slice the fat off my thighs. I was going to. And I thought the scars can't be any worse than what they look like now. And I was sobbing, sobbing, and sobbing. And that's when I became willing to go to one of those OA meetings I had heard about. That's pretty nuts. Um, so, um, and step two... Um, I, I looked around the meetings and decided those girls could help me do something that I couldn't do by myself. In fact, that's what they were doing. They were helping each other do what none of them could do by themselves. It's kind of like the mathematical paradox. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Zero and zero and zero equals zero. But for some reason, when all of us zeros get together, when six of us zeros are together, we have six ones. We can help each other. All of us abstain, and we can go out and get more people and help them abstain too. That's pretty remarkable. That's certainly a power greater than myself. So in step three, I became willing 
I became teachable. I admitted I'm teachable. I'm going to listen to these girls and do whatever they're doing. I will not do everything that I'm told because nobody should ever do that. I'm not going to say I'll do whatever you tell me to do, but I'll do whatever you've done. That's fair. And that's all they asked of me. They just said what they were doing, and I could do it or go out and suffer some more. (laughs) And I could handle that. So, um, And then 4 through 9, which we did through the big book, writing out my fourth step was in three columns. Who I'm angry at, what they did specifically that I resent, and how it affected me. I ended up with 22 pages of resentments. I had no idea that I had so much resentment, but I did. I had never forgiven a single person for a single thing they had done to me. In fact, I was still plotting revenge against all of them. That's part of why my head was always going. And and I had never said I'm sorry for anything I had ever done to anybody. So that's part of why my head was always going, because I was afraid they were going to catch me. And it's, it's kind of hard to keep a career going when you have all that baggage and weight. It's also hard to abstain, but when I worked the steps, all of a sudden it became easier to abstain. So there was all my 22 pages, and I went to my sponsor's house and told her all of it. We starting with mom and dad, siblings, everyone I've ever known, girlfriends, boyfriends, teachers, employers, that husband that died and I shouldn't have had any resentments about, but damn, I came up with a couple. And um, everyone I had never ever known, co-workers, the IRS, that's on everybody's inventory. <laughs> and I had some grudges against democracy, too. I don't anymore. but um, So it was all there, and I told it to her and felt this huge weight lifted off my shoulders for a couple reasons. One was that she accepted me anyway. A human being knew me, knew all my very worst stuff and accepted me anyway. That was so comforting. And she told me some funny stories about her past that were similar to mine along the way. And this wonderful lady that I admired so much had done some really crummy stuff. (laughs) And some of it even is is bad or worse than mine. So um, I got closer to her that way. She was like me, and I was like her in those ways. I heard a girl say the other day that she likes sponsoring and being and um, having a sponsor because it makes her feel like she's part of a chain, all the way from Roseanne all the way up to the newest newcomer. Isn't that kind of cool? I liked that concept. Um, so I worked those steps, and then um, the sixth step, we added two more columns when we looked at all these resentments and what my part in it was. And I thought, my part? They did it to me. But if I looked in all of them, many, in many of those instances, I had something to do with either setting myself up to be victimized or I started it kind of in the first place. So... Um, it's very useful to me to figure out what was my behavior, what would it is I do, and all of that. And then the next column, we made a list of the opposites of those. 
So I came out of this with a blueprint for living. Here's behaviors I've done all my life that don't work very well. They're called character defects, but really all they are is behaviors I've done that don't work very well. And here's a list of behaviors I can try to do to the best of my ability one day at a time that might work better. And so we go home and sit with that. And I could look through these um, situations that ended up in me resenting them. And I could follow it through and see where if I had behaved differently, the outcome would have been different. My, my. That was the first hope I ever had that my life could change. Up until then, I was just going on faith that their lives had changed, so mine would too. I didn't know how. But right there, I saw this is how my life can change. I changed my behavior. I can do that. I don't have any magic, and I don't have any theories, but I can change my behavior. And so I set about doing that, and it took me about a year and a half of very hard work to think twice about everything I said and did and try to do it the new way. But after a while, it became easy because I got good reactions from people. Those were positive reinforcements. And along the way, we also did the eighth and ninth step. And along the way, I was making amends for the bad behaviors. And boy, there's nothing that will change my behavior faster than having to make amends for my old behavior. But you know what's the wonderful thing about steps four through nine is that um, that fourth step from the AA Big Book, that's all my victim stuff. Those 22 pages were all of my victim baggage was right there. Everything that everybody's, anybody's ever done to me was out of my head, my overactive head, and onto the paper. It was wonderful. I didn't have to think about it anymore. And in steps eight and nine, there was all my resentment baggage. Everybody I'd ever done something to, it was out of my head now and onto the paper. I don't have to carry around the resentment anymore. I don't have to carry around the fear either. We also made a list of my fears. All of them came down to fear of not getting enough. <laughs> that, I wonder why. <laughs> but um, it goes along with all my diseases of never getting enough. Um, so there I had a blueprint for living, and that's what I do with girls I sponsor today is take them through the steps the same way I was taken through the steps. 10, 11, and 12 are the maintenance steps that I still use um, regularly. When I was new, I did 10 steps a lot because my behaviors hadn't changed yet and I was still creating wreckage sometimes. Now I only do a 10-step as needed because I don't go around creating wreckage every day. You know, I learned how to behave like a real human being among other human beings. And most of the time, I don't have any problems with people. Most of the time, I get along with most everybody. That's a wonderful thing. It gives me a warm feeling in, in my chest to care about people and to know that they know me and care about me too. It's a wonderful thing that I never had until I came here and learned how to become a human being. And um, the 11th step, I don't talk about that too much because I would not be so presumptuous is to tell anyone anything about spirituality. All I can say is that it's a personal journey. It says in step 11 that we um, 
we continue to progress or something like that. I can't remember the exact words right now. And to, to oh, continue to grow. And to grow, we have to stay open-minded and keep learning, keep evaluating all the new stuff that comes into our life, taking what we can use, leaving what we can't use. It doesn't say that we decide this is what God is and I'm going to spend the rest of my life arguing with everybody who sees it differently. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Believe it or not, I've met some people in these meetings and elsewhere who think that they're working their 11th step when they try to tell you my God is better than yours. Do want you to take mine? <laughs> no. <laughs> And so, um, and then step 12 is every kind of service. Sponsoring people is, is some of the service I do. When um, people in these 12-step programs first presented to me the idea of service, I thought, how will that get me what I want? I don't get it how doing something for other people will make me happy. But, but here's how it works. When I have a problem with something, I struggle with it for a while, and then I give up and do a tenth step. I write down who's involved in this problem. Even if I think this problem isn't about a person and it isn't about a resentment, if I look hard, I can find somebody in the problem. And if I look hard, I can find a resentment. And if I write them down, the rest of the problem starts unraveling. It's like pulling one little thread out of a big knot of threads. I can't. Big knots are overwhelming to me, but when I start to pull out one thread and do a tenth step, that cuts it down into something I can do. So how does it affect me? What is my part in it, and what can I do differently? I can do some footwork, or I can make amends. If there's no footwork left to do, and there's no amends for me to make, um, then it's time to turn my attention to service, because and just... Get, get my mind off of it. If there's nothing left to do, why wallow in it? You know, if I just do some service and take my mind off of it, it might resolve itself a little bit or change in some way. Then I can take another look at it and see, okay, is there any footwork I can do now? Is there any amends? If, I'm, um, if I can't decide what amends I might have to make, then I talk to my sponsor, and she can always come up with whether I have some amends to make or not. And... Frequently, I don't. She said, Peggy, we're not always wrong. Oh, that's terrific. <laughs> so, um, so that's how it works. Some days in the beginning, I did service all day long. I called my sponsor. I'm abstaining and I'm so nervous and I'm going crazy and I hate so-and-so. She's screwing up my life. Find some service to do. Serious? So I found some service to do. And while I was doing it, I didn't think about myself for a while and my problems. It gave me sweet freedom from my own head and my own self-absorption. I say today that service is the antidote for self-centeredness. It's the antidote for self-fill-in-the-blank, antidote for self-anything. So I did some service for a while. And then I called her back and said, I'm nervous again. Um, it didn't work, that it worked while you were doing it, didn't it? Yeah. Go find some more service to do? Yes. So some days I did that. I would do some more service and call her again and do more and more service and service and service until I hated it. But at the end of the day, I was still abstinent. 
and the world was a little better place for all the service I did. And I had a little bit of self-esteem that I had actually earned. Self-esteem doesn't come to us by us wishing for it or even praying for it. Self-esteem comes when we do something for people and get our hands dirty and fix something, make it better, make it cleaner, help somebody. That's how we get real self-esteem that stays with us forever. So um, it works and it keeps working. How much time do I have? Good. I will talk about the last 20 years. (laughs) All of that I did in the first the steps I did in the first couple of years, and I was in the San Fernando Valley. Then I got asthma, and I had to leave the valley because it was still smoggy at that time. I came over here. I moved to Venice Beach, and, um, and then I moved to Mar Vista, and then I met the man that I married a short time thereafter I met this man and he was the nicest man I had ever known he caught me at just the right time my I was getting too old to be a rock and roll musician and I was you know in my 30s and um and I was sick I was doing this hypoglycemia thing and this man cared about me anyway I told him I'm I'm going to be sick for a while you should go with, be with some other people he said I'm not going anywhere and I realized this man cared about me and um, he wanted to marry me and have a family with me I had never thought I would ever have children with anyone I had never met a man that I would have children with I, <laughs> you know I would go to bed with them but not have children with them I wouldn't marry them. I wouldn't even go to lunch with some of them. But but you know how we are. And so, um, but this man, this, this man was different. And he caught me at just the right time. It's funny. He asked me to marry him. And then he kept on talking. And I never did say yes. But, um... Uh, he's a lawyer, so he goes on talking always. So we, so we got married, and we had um, my beautiful, beautiful daughter in 1990. She is 17 years old now. And so I was going to OA meetings here at Second and Hill. I went to those early morning meetings. I was secretary of one, treasurer of another, took turns with all of those. And I had a house in Mar Vista, and he had one in Pacific Palisades. So we got married here, and I got pregnant, and then we needed a bigger house. So we looked into either expanding that house or moving to Malibu or Palos Verdes. So I took a look around Palos Verdes, and it was ideal for us. We could get something close to the um, on the east end of Palos Verdes, close to the 110 freeway. His law firm is downtown. He's been there for 35 years. He was a law clerk there. He's never had another job in his life. That's how stable this man is. Before that, I went out with musicians and a couple of other lawyers and people who were, you know, fun. And and that's why I didn't date him for a while because I thought lawyers are boring. But um, he had a sense of humor, and he got he got to me. It was the sincerity, I think. And we're still married. I've been married to that man nine, uh, nine, 
let's see, 88, 19 years this year. And we've lived in the same house for 18 years. We bought the house in Palos Verdes. That's the longest I've ever been in one place or with one person. And my daughter is 17 years old, and she's gorgeous. I have raised her. I can honestly say um, that I have raised her to the best of my ability and conscientiously the way I would raise a child. And I could be accused of giving her everything that I didn't have. Well, so what? She has all the best stuff that children ought to have. She has two parents that love each other and are still together. A house to live in. I'm not running her all over the world, according to whoever I'm married to or divorced from at the moment, like my mother did with me. And she's had a wonderful education. She's brilliant like me and has ADD like me, but she's in a private school for gifted children. So they give her absolutely as much as she can handle. And she doesn't get bored and get into mischief. Actually, I got into lots of mischief because I was just so fucking bored. And, and so, I sorry I said fuck on the tape. Can you leave that out? <laughs> But, <coughs> so that's been um, so that's been one of the wonderful things of living abstinent, clean, sober, and everything else. I took child rearing lessons so that I could learn how do you do state of the art parenting, and I've done state of the art parenting. And if I screwed up anywhere along the way, she can go to a psychiatrist when she grows up and straighten it out because it won't be much. It might be a little bit, you know. When I was growing up, you know, my mother had the can, the aluminum can that said grease on the side on the stove. In the morning, that was state-of-the-art parenting. You fry up the breakfast. You fry the eggs in the grease from the bacon or sausage. You put the grease in the can. Then for dinner, you take the grease, the rancid grease, and you fry up the dinner. <laughs> That's revolting, isn't it? But I was born in the 50s, so my mother was giving us three square meals a day, and that was what mothers were supposed to do, and it was all fried food. But we, um, we do things different now. My daughter eats lots of vegetables. I make healthy meals for my family, vegetables, and um, plus it's easy. Throw the vegetables in the microwave, throw the meat under the broiler. It's a healthy meal, and it's fast. And if they don't want healthy food today, they can stop at the hundred or so fast food places on PCH, which they do regularly because they love junk food. And so um, I've done that. When I got pregnant, I was a couple years abstinent. In fact, when I did this hypoglycemia thing, I had been three meals a day and nothing in between gray sheet for about a year, year and a half. And they told me I had to eat five or six small meals a day. And I thought, oh, no, that's like crazy. I don't know if I can do it. And I went to my OA meetings here at Second and Hill, and I told them how scared I was. And they said, let the doctors be your food sponsors. That was so wise. I just calmed down, and I did it. And I looked at that first little teeny meal, and I thought, I'll starve. 
But two and a half hours later, it was time to eat again, another teeny meal. So my stomach had a chance and just a couple days got used to this new food plan that I was on. And um, and I didn't have to binge over that because people in OA meetings helped me. I got pregnant actually a couple times and miscarried. And after my daughter, I miscarried four times in one year. We tried to have another one. And through all of those, um, your hormones are just topsy-turvy. I don't, you guys can go, I like talking about the age word hormones, but it plays games on your mind. I mean, you're just depressed one day, so, so furious the next day, and it's just hormones messing with your mind. And when they're bouncing up and down like that, plus you have the grief of losing a baby, and then the hope, oh, I'm pregnant again, and all the jubilation of being pregnant again, and all the fear of losing it, and then there it is. It's gone again. And it was a crappy year. The only way I stayed abstinent during that year was by telling it to the girls in my OA meetings. Then when I did get pregnant, I had to eat like a pregnant lady. I had to gain weight. I was scared again and went to my OA meetings and said, I'm scared about gaining weight. They told me to gain 25 to 30 pounds. And um, they also told me, this is interesting, that the doctors told me that I only had to eat 100 calories a day to gain the right amount of weight. Isn't that funny? Waitresses will bring you free pieces of pie and say, you're eating for two now, dear. They think we're supposed to eat thousands of calories a day more because we're pregnant. But really, you can have a healthy pregnancy just eating 100 calories a day more. So that's why I did. I added a calcium food. And it was a frozen, no-sugar dessert-type thing. But um, it has calcium, a calcium-type food. And... Um, I ate that, got some calcium. Also, I didn't get gestational diabetes because I was already eating the cure. My hypoglycemic diet was the cure. Oh, goody, five minutes. That's how much I have. So, um, OA people helped me tremendously with that. Once again, they said, let the doctors be your food sponsors. And then when you're nursing for a year, you have to gradually cut down your calories as she cuts down nursing. So... That was a scary time, too, because you have no control over the fluctuation of your weight. You gauge it as best as you can, but um, if, if I could take my hormones, test my hormones every single day, that would give me a better clue as to what to eat today. But I settled on a weight that's not one specific number. I decided that a woman's weight naturally fluctuates several pounds a month, and there is absolutely nothing we can do about that. So my weight parameters have been between 120 and 125 pounds. And now that I'm a little older and we naturally gain a little weight, even if we're abstaining when we're older, and I have tried every which way to defy <laughs> nature on that, I work out every day. I have every day since 1976. That's the other thing I, I did. I work out every single day unless I'm flat on my back in bed. And that helps. I do the very best I can. So, you know, if my weight fluctuates, as long as my weight stays between those, I'm okay. If I get up to the top of my weight parameters, 
and I can't think of any reason why I take a look at what I've been eating lately. Has something creeped in to my food plan? They've invented new foods since I got abstinent. And sometimes I try them, and if they're okay, they go in. If I start gaining weight, or if my meals suddenly become one of those, next meal is two of those, I take a look at that and say, you know, this is going to take over my life. It goes on my abstinence list now. And I just mercilessly get rid of it. Because that will cost me everything I have. A binge, again, one binge could send me straight to what I used to have. When when the girls I sponsor write out their first step, their history of eating, I tell them to tape it to the refrigerator door. And if they want to binge again, they can read that and ask themselves, do I want to live that again? (laughs) Do I want to live my... My pre-OA life again? No. So all I have to do is abstain. My food is not very colorful. Well, vegetables are colorful. My food is not very exciting, but my life is exciting. I get to have a technicolor life because I keep it simple with the food. If we keep it simple with our food plan, this is what I eat. I eat absolutely nothing else no matter what. I get to have a technicolor life. People are kind to me when I'm hurting. There have been deaths, you know, a couple of them over the last 20 years. People in no way comforted me. That real compassion from real humans helped me heal. If I had turned to the food instead, that would numb me up for a while. But when the food was gone, all the grief would come back. And I'd still have to work through the grief. So if I just skip the binging and go right to the people, they help me get through it as graciously as it can be gotten through every time. And all the good things that happen to me, OA people are happy for me. Joy shared is joy doubled. And grief shared is grief halved. Some wise person in some other country said that. I just borrowed it. In fact, everything in my program is borrowed from other people in the program. So I want to wrap this up and tell you that this is the best life I've ever, ever had. Um, I love 12-step people. You're the nicest people I've ever met in my life. Everywhere I go, I check in with the 12-step groups and meet the nicest people in town. You're the kindest people I've ever met in my life. You're my family, and um, I'm very happy to be part of you. I would love to live this way the rest of my life. I absolutely intend to. So thanks for being here today. Thanks for reminding me to stay abstinent for one more day no matter what.